Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrooks.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. This is a game day podcast from TalkSport. Hello and welcome to the Game Day Podcast from TalkSport with me, Sam Matterface, European expert Kevin Hatchard and TalkSport football correspondent Alex Crook as England fans go bloodthirsty after being savaged by hungry Magyars. There's now two distinct camps forming, some loud anti-Gareth sentiment and those who just think he's South great. But is the truth somewhere in the middle? Also this week, a full analysis of the fixture list as the Premier League opening weekend sees Palace welcome Arsenal live on TalkSport on the first Friday night fixture of the season. Fulham welcome Liverpool, West Ham at home to City and Chelsea going to Everton. Plus, Apple take a slice of sport for the first time, the core of the MLS. Why is that significant? We'll tell you. All on the podcast that is by the pool in the day and supping cocktails at night. It's the Game Day Podcast from Talk Sport. This is Game Day. Ah, yes, and true facts. I'm actually in the garden in Costa del Manchester. And uh, we are a little bit later than we expected recording this podcast, aren't we, Kevin? Because Alex Crook made us all get up early to be a specific, to do to do this podcast at a specific time, because he has got to play golf later and everybody has to form in around his schedule. We all got here on time and he was too busy on the phone to an agent. I'll be trying to pin him down for ages. So what is this big exclusive that you've got for us? Well, you'll have to wait until the, uh, the transfer <laughs> notebook comes out <laughs> a little bit later. Why? Why can't you just tell us? By the time this podcast goes out, the transfer notebook would already be out, won't it? Well, do you know what? I'm actually just clicking send on the transfer notebook. It revolves around Nick Pope, actually. And do you know what? Goalkeepers are all the rage this window. We've seen Gavin Bazunu uh, complete his move to Southampton. I think it's an excellent piece of business for them. Dean Henderson, I think, will go to Nottingham Forest, basically because he's run out of options. And Newcastle, therefore, now turning their attentions towards Nick Pope, which is interesting because I was told that Eddie Howe wanted a goalkeeper with the capability to play out from the back. Mm, and as we know... Uh, Nick Pope, that is probably the weakest part of his game, but goalkeepers are certainly in big demand this window. Okay, we'll get to transfers in just a second. We've got a whole section on it a little bit later on. We're going to talk England and we're going to talk about a little bit of business as well, but the fixtures have just been released and Manchester City starting the new season with a game against West Ham uh, at the London Stadium on the first Sunday of the season. We're starting our coverage live on TalkSport with a Friday night game against Arsenal from Crystal Palace and basically you know as Crook said the reason that one has been picked not by TalkSport but by TV is because everybody thinks that Arsenal will turn up on the opening day of the season and get beat again Kevin yeah and I think that's entirely possible I was at Selhurst Park for that you know rather poor performance when they were beaten 3-0 by Palace deservedly so Palace were great from the get-go and this is a really big season for Arsenal because I think you know we said at the time when Arsenal missed out on that top four spot two Spurs 
fella that could be really significant in their short term and, and midterm future. And I still believe that you only look at the business that Spurs are already doing. The fact that they've been able to hang on to Antonio Conte. Arsenal have a lot of work to do, I think, in the summer. And Mikel Arteta has got to lift those players ahead of the new season because it is going to be difficult to attract top players. There's no question about that. Yeah, uh, Fulham-Liverpool is 12.30 on the opening weekend, which is the 6th of August. So the first game, Crystal Palace versus Arsenal, live on TalkSport, is 8 o'clock on the 5th of August. Yes, I know my kids would only have been off for seven days as well by that point. Um, 12.30, on the, <laughs> 12.30 on the Saturday is Fulham against Liverpool. 5.30 is Everton at Chelsea. The three o'clock games are Bournemouth against Aston Villa, Leeds against Wolves, Leicester against Brentford, Newcastle against Nottingham Forest. Welcome back, Forest uh, going to Newcastle mega rich Newcastle and Tottenham against Southampton Sunday's games are Manchester United against Brighton and West Ham United against Manchester City there's no Monday night game uh, on the first weekend of the season it's Friday night game and TalkSport have Friday nights Monday nights uh, Saturday lunchtime 12.30 and midweek matches as well so make sure you're with us for all of those uh, Palace um, actually have got a tricky set of opening fixtures. Not only do they have Arsenal on the opening day, then they have trips to Liverpool and Manchester City in two of the next three weekends. Talk about chastening start. The Cherries have got a tough one as well. They face a daunting schedule on their return to the Premier League. After kicking off the season at home to Aston Villa, Scott Parker's men face Manchester City, Arsenal and Liverpool consecutively. Nottingham Forest will end their 23 absence in the top flight with a tricking opening run as well. They've got four of the bookmakers predicted top eight in August. September will be kinder to Steve Cooper's side as they host their fellow promoted sides at home either side of a trip to Leeds who narrowly avoided the drop last term. Uh, Brentford also likely to be needing points on the board by mid-April because they've got Manchester City, Liverpool, Chelsea and Tottenham among their final six opponents. Southampton. What about Southampton's fixtures? Ooh, they finished last season poorly. They took just one point from the last six matches. They could come under early pressure. Three of Saints' first five fixtures are against teams expecting to challenge for a place in the top four. Crook, are you concerned? Um, no, not overly. Um, I'm not necessarily convinced by the strength of the teams coming out from the championship, to be honest. I think all three uh, will be down there fighting for survival. Southampton, I think it's going to be a big summer for them. I mentioned Bazunu. Uh, coming in, I, I was told a couple of days ago they could bring in potentially up to 10 new faces. Ralph Hasenhutl really keen to overhaul his squad. And I think he's right because it's a squad that um, has been going a little bit stale. Uh, maybe you might see one or two established players move on as well. Obviously, <laughs> as a United supporter, my eyes are immediately drawn to their fixtures. And it's not an easy start for Eric Ten Hag either. You mentioned Brighton, a very tricky customer when it comes uh, to the top teams in the league as United found their cost down at the Amex when they were battered at the back end of last season. They've got Kev's beloved Liverpool in the third match of the season. Arsenal, their fifth opponents, a trip to Leicester as well. So I think Eric Ten Hag uh, potentially faces a very difficult introduction to Premier League football. And of course, you wonder how many new faces will be on board at United by the time the season kicks off because the window doesn't close until September the 1st. Well, that squad depth is going to be tested to the limit in October, for example, because they've got to fit three Europa League group games in October itself around a gruelling Premier League schedule. In fact, they've got six tricky league fixtures during the month, beginning with Manchester's, uh, the Manchester derby at the Etihad. They've got a trip to Chelsea straight after the midweek visit of Tottenham. Uh, and they've got those Europa League fixtures <laughs> <laughs> to come as well. Um, look, I mean, I suppose the good news is is that um, the mid-season break 
for the World Cup is bookended by matches against two of the promoted teams with relatively easy running as well for Manchester United. So, look, it, it, it all, they say it evens itself out over the course of the season. Of course, we know that's not entirely true, but it, mainly it does. Liverpool's fixtures, Kevin, are you happy with those? Yeah, I'm interested about the trip to Fulham to start with. I think that's quite intriguing. I'd be interested to see if Darwin Nunez starts. Uh, I'm quite excited about his signing. Uh, I think yeah. he's somebody that has rightly got a good reputation because I know people will look at Portugal and say, well, yeah, he, scored, he was top scorer in Portugal. What does that really mean? But Luis Diaz came from that league and he's hit the ground running and been absolutely terrific so far. Well, Portuguese think- talent tends to do very well in the Premier League, doesn't it? I mean, going back to even someone like Ruben Neves, who went to the Championship first and Matinho and Patricio at Wolverhampton Wanderers, they've had a, a great time with Portuguese talent. Oh, I think what's interesting as well is if you listen to kind of fellow Uruguayan strikers, you listen to Cavani, you listen to Suarez, you listen to Diego Forlan, they all speak so highly of him. And I think he's a perfect fit for Liverpool in the sense that they've got that front three. He will pull out naturally to that left-hand side anyway, but you can play him as that centre forward. You could play him on the left of a three if you wanted. He's great in transition. He's a direct runner with the ball, really strong. I think he's a terrific signing. And I think, again, it shows that Liverpool, I know Sadio Mane wanting to leave kind of accelerated the process to some extent, but Liverpool do seem to have this knack of being able to refresh the squad when necessary. And Mm. they got the business done very quickly in a similar way to the way they did the Luis Diaz deal. So uh, I think it's another big tick against what Liverpool are doing recruitment wise. Uh, And Crook, uh, would you take the word of uh, Edison Cavani? (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't take the word of Edison Cavani for much, to be honest, but I'll let him be a good judge of a striker. Um, Adel Tourette, uh on the boot room last weekend compared him to a combination uh, of Cavani and Suarez. He said he's good in the air, which I'm not convinced actually, but he likes to run in behind. I think the exciting thing about this signing for Liverpool fans is that there's still a lot of developing to do. This is a player who's only really had one full season at the highest level of European football, a player who's been on the radar of lesser lights in the Premier League if you like for some time so I think they're, they're, they're paying for potential um, whether he will be a week in week out starter I think there's a lot of competition for places you've got Jota obviously you've got Diaz who's going to want to hold down a regular on the team Salah is still there Firmino doesn't appear to be going anywhere it's a it's a galaxy of riches for Liverpool. And um, I, I was looking at the fixtures actually to see where Liverpool and Man City are on the final day of the season. I think Liverpool come down to St Mary's and Man City play Brentford, uh, if I'm correct. I wouldn't be surprised if we're in a similar situation in May that we were this season and a couple of seasons ago where those two juggernauts are only separated by the finest of margins. Okay, uh, just a quick word on the uh, the changes because there were announced overnight the idea that the Premier League matches between Boxing Day and New Year's Day is going to be dropped uh, from the schedule in a, a sort of move to ease player burnout. The normal December 28th fixtures have been moved to counter concerns over the Boxing Day return to domestic duties coming just eight days after the final in Doha. Of course, there might be much burnout if, uh, for example, England went out in the group stage uh, and didn't have to play again until December the 26th. There will be some people who get a really elongated holiday, actually. You know, players that aren't involved in the World Cup 
are off for a very long time during that period, by the way. So there will be sort of a bit of renewal going on during that process because, of course, there's only a certain number of players that can go to the World Cup. Um, the normal tour of December 28 fixtures uh, will take place later in the year. But basically, you'll get so you'll get the Boxing Day calendar, the New Year's Eve calendar, and January the 2nd. That's still quite a lot of fixtures, actually, <laughs> over the course of that period. So they've just taken one little round out um, and the Football League are putting fixtures on Boxing Day, the 29th and the 1st. So it sort of spreads out the football, I think, over the course of that period. Um, mainly it's to do with sort of like trying to release a little bit of the burden on the players. But let's, let's be honest about it. They, I think they've also realised that they can put those fixtures elsewhere and they can still get the maximum benefit because they can just spread the fixtures out anyway and that won't really affect their TV schedules. Okay, talking of player burnout... Shall we have a quick word on England? The reaction speaks a thousand words, and there will be a thousand words and more spoken about this. My eyes hurt, and I'm sorry about your ears. Lifeless, negative, difficult to watch. You want to win a World Cup, you need a star man. You know, our Jack Greenish doesn't play, I don't get it. So you've got no creation, no goal scoring midfield players. At the centre-forward start of the service, you've got too many defensive players. It's a young, very inexperienced team. You can't get away with that at international level. I don't think it's great to be looking at the prism that we're looking through, which is the poor European nations. I don't think we'll be in this nick in September. If we play like this in September, then by all means say, what the hell is going yeah, on here yeah. now? England, nowhere, nowhere near it. I think Southgate has run out of ideas. Learn from it, move forward. Gareth, right now, is the right man to lead us forward to the next tournament. The two hungry games are really disappointing, but it's two games that we have to take on the chin, move forward, and make sure that we have everyone ready for uh, an exciting winter. A group of staff, we need to review this whole camp, and um, clearly lots of things need to improve. Wowzers, that was some defeat at home at Molyneux to Hungary. 4-0. It probably wasn't a 4-0 game when you look back at it and watch it again. It was, uh, but it was still a chastening defeat. I thought some of the defending was nothing short of abysmal. I mean, I don't know where Carl Walker thought he was. I mean, there was one of the goals where I thought, oh, has he put the wrong postcode into his sat-nav here? <clears throat> has he forgotten that there's someone behind him and actually doesn't need to be dragged into the middle? Maybe it's a good idea to keep an eye on the guy who's unmarked at the back post. But anyway, um, the fallout's been pretty severe I think we've sort of worked ourselves into a position now where, like every single debate that takes place in the modern world, you are either staunchly anti-Gareth Southgate or staunchly pro-Southgate, Gareth Southgate. And there's no grey area. But ultimately, Kevin, the truth is somewhere in between. I've read two big articles from two big hitters of uh, the football world, the football media. Sam Wallace is the chief football writer at the, uh, the wasn't the Independent, now at the Telegraph, very well, well respected. Henry Winter has been around the block for a very long time, who is the uh, chief football writer at the, at the Times. And they, they couldn't be more uh, separated if you tried. I mean, the, the opening line of, of um, Sam's piece is, this was even more wild than the usual rage that accompanies an England humiliation. And you get the feeling that at Molyneux on Tuesday night that Gareth Southgate knew it too, as he attempted to offer himself up as a human shield. 
England, it should be said, are rarely beaten by four goals at home. And not since the last days of Dixie Dean uh, have the team uh, and the team was picked by committee has it happened. Yet, here we were with Hungary, who will be spectators at the World Cup in November, picking off Southgate's team for a second time in seven days. A wretched performance. Um, Some tried to get a chant. He said, actually, the, the key line is, but the fury at Southgate was strong at times. It beggared belief. And he talks about the fact that there's a sense of entitlement amongst England fans, which has started to creep back in and he doesn't understand where it's from. Whereas Henry, basically, the headline is is that Gareth Southgate is a second-rate manager. He, he says, Gareth Southgate's long, warm honeymoon is over, replaced by the heat of the fans' wrath. Those who sung Southgate, you're the one, you still turn me on, started you, chanting, you've get, you'll get sacked in the morning. Lack, lack of gratitude, overly entitled, hardly these fans can see these players. And then you've got um, Jeremy Carragher who comes out and basically says, you don't know what you're doing, which was one of the chants of the England fans on Tuesday night. What clowns. This group is no better than 2004, 2006, 1996, 1998. So there's a wide variety of opinions, Kevin. And I sort of think once you sort of navigate your way through it and you use your own eyes and, you know, we're sort of in between a sort of situation where actually Southgate isn't as bad as he's being made out to be by some quarters. He's certainly not as good tactically as some are are making out. And there's all the other factors about tiredness, the Nations League, the World Cup in the wrong place of the year and players absolutely finding out that, that there are some of them that aren't as good as maybe some people think they are. Yeah, I I think all of those things are correct. I think people have got short memories. Uh, I think, you know, you talk about elite coaches. Fabio Capello was an elite coach. Sven Joran Eriksson was regarded by many as an elite coach and it didn't work out for them. And Gareth Southgate's ability to unite a group, that kind of holistic approach, that ability to take away the fear of playing for England that kind of paralysed him in games like the Iceland defeat, for example, that's been one of his biggest successes, to make playing for England fun again, to make it desirable again. And we've seen that in the performances. You know, they got to the semi-finals of the World Cup. There were a few penalty kicks away from winning the European Championship. It wasn't that long ago that we were talking about England's incredible defensive record, but they've played the Nations League. The players are tired. There's no quite all of the players are tired from all of the nations. I get that, but it leads to weird results. And we'll come on to France in a bit, but they've had exactly the same issue. I don't think that defeat against Hungary is as instructive as people are making out. Mm. The last two goals came in the last 10 minutes. England played an experimental side. Yet again, he played this more attacking formation. And every time he does that, it doesn't work because he's built the progress on this solid defensive block. And then you try and let the flair players do their thing. If you try and, but, but that is international players. football, Doesn't isn't work. it, Kevin? Because, you know, we watch yes. Liverpool and Manchester City every week and everyone thinks they should play like that. But obviously it doesn't, doesn't work. work like that because you don't get no. the time on the training ground to develop those combinations that Manchester City and Liverpool do. And they relentlessly drill their players. Whereas at international level, that's just, that's just not, it's not possible. Look at the way that France won the World Cup in 2018. They had a very solid defensive structure and they had flair players who could go and win a tight game. That's how you win international tournaments. Mm. It's very, very rare that incredible teams go and win tournaments. You know, some of the great Brazil teams that yeah. played unbelievable football. 82. 
didn't win international tournaments. And this is how it works. And I think I think you're right. I think what happens is people look at Guardiola, they look at Klopp, they look at some of the football that gets played in the Premier League and think, why can't we have that? Well, for a start, you cannot attract that type of coach to international football. No. Germany, it was a bit of a fluke, really, being able to get Hansi Flick because he fell out with Hassan Salahamidzic at Bayern. Where is he going to go? So the Germany job came up and that was a natural fit. But it's very rare to get a coach of that standing to come and uh, take an international job for the reasons you mentioned. You don't get time on the training ground. You have to wait ages for, for international matches. So I don't know what people want, really. And I also think your point is correct about people thinking England have the best squad in the world. They yeah, don't. They don't. They really, really don't. They really they have don't. Some, they have some good players. And I think it's a familiarity thing. I think fans see these players in the Premier League week in, week out and think, ah, oh, we've got the best squad in the world. Portugal are amazing in mm. terms of the talent level they've got. And France you only have to look at the incredible. team sheet. You reckon, everyone recognises the name on the Portuguese team sheet, for example, the, and the Spanish one as well. It's like, come on, guys. England are... Okay, they might have some players that are equal to some of these guys. They might have a couple of talents that are better than that. I mean... You know, arguably, if you ask them anybody who, who England's most flair player was, they'd probably say Jack Grealish. Now, are you telling me that he is one of the world's best players and can hold a candle to someone like Kylian Mbappe or even, you know, Mohamed Salah, who plays for Egypt, for God's sakes? You know, it's, it's not true that we've got this, no. this, this wonderful um, array of top-class, world-class talent. We haven't. We've got some very, very, very good young players that have developed and have developed basically thanks to some of the work that Gareth did behind the scenes when he was part of the FA's overhaul of the academy and international junior programmes. So there's this lots of different facets to the whole thing, and it's a little bit more nuanced than Southgate's rubbish, Southgate's great. It's tiny margins as well. Italy are the European champions. Italy are not going to the World Cup. No. Because in a tight game against North Macedonia, it went against them. And I think we've become really entitled in terms of how easily we qualify for major tournaments. Wasn't that long ago we had the Wally and the Broly situation <laughs> with Steve McLaren? And that was the European Championships. You know, USA 94 is one of my favourite World Cups of all time, but England weren't there. Yeah, that's because so, you like Diana Ross, though. Well, that as well. Um, I'm going to see her at Glastonbury, by the way. Uh, oh. So look, look, it, it's it, these are all, you know, there's a bit of recency bias in there, but I just think this is a massive overreaction. And I do think part of it is because Gareth Southgate is seen as a liberal and some people simply don't like that. And I think that's not a major part of it, but it is a part of it. I think sometimes success can be your own worst enemy and obviously expectation levels have been raised by what England have achieved under Gareth Southgate and there are achievements to get to a World Cup semi-final, a European Championship final. It's fantastic when you look how starved of success we as England followers have been uh, over the past, what, six decades probably, yeah. uh, barring the odd fleeting moment under Sir Bobby Robson and Terry Venables. I I'm not in the camp that Southgate is absolutely hopeless but I am in the camp that I do not believe that Southgate can take England to the next level. Maybe this group of players don't deserve to be at the next level. Maybe they've peaked. That is a possibility. So I'm not going to character assassinate Gareth Southgate. I think he has some tremendous qualities. I think he's been a fantastic ambassador. He's been great for those young players, as you say. I think tactically, he's always left a lot to be desired. 
and I didn't like the post-match interview from, from Harry Kane. He basically said what Kev has just said on this podcast. You have to remember what we've achieved. That doesn't excuse a 4-0 defeat at home to Hungary. The worst home defeat since 1928. It was, it was an abysmal performance, but I don't necessarily think it's on Southgate. I think it's on the players. I think the lack of effort throughout this Nations League campaign has been startling. And I don't buy into the, the argument that's because they're tired after a long season. That's the same for most of the elite players. It was a terrible England performance. Yeah, it was. And But you say it's, it's the same for most of the elite players. I suppose then uh, the way to counter that, and it was a dreadful, it was absolutely dreadful performance. It was rubbish. Um, and the, actually what was more concerning for me was is that they probably won the match on expected goals and still didn't score. Um, but ultimately it was the capitulation at the end that really did it for me because they yeah. just went to pieces at the at the end. And there were some really stupid decisions made. Bringing on Harry Maguire was one of the worst pieces of management that I have seen from Gareth Southgate because the game had gone by that point when John Stones was sent off. And I know he wanted to get a central defender on, but ultimately I think it was a mistake because from a human level, the last thing you want is to bring Harry Maguire on and have him booed by the home crowd. That would be a nightmare. And that's exactly what happened. And I thought I could have told you that was going to happen. And Ranić did the same thing to him a little while ago uh, during a game against, what was it? Atletico Madrid, I think it was at home. And I just thought, you've seen this happen before. And even if you believe that it shouldn't be happening, you know it might. So don't risk it for two minutes at the end of a game that you've already been thrashed in. I agree. And as you know, it takes a lot for me to feel any kind of sympathy for Harry Maguire. But I thought that was outrageous from Southgate. You knew the reaction. I didn't really understand why he was bringing on any defender for a forward at that stage. As you say, the game has gone. It's not about damage limitation at home to Hungary. But to put Maguire into that situation, I thought was a dereliction of duty of care, really, from the England manager. Which I think is unusual for him. Absolutely. I agree with you. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. I, I think one of the things that's being forgotten as well is that, I, I don't know, look, England generally should beat Hungary at home. That's what should happen. And I think England's strongest team maybe does. But what Hungary are excellent at under Marco Rossi is a really good counter-attacking team. Mm. And I think actually... They were against Germany. You've, people have forgotten yeah. the fact that they were brilliant in the Euros against Germany, Portugal and France and the group of death. That's right. And in the re one of the recent Nations League games against Germany, they played very, very well and they created chances. And if they'd have won that game, you wouldn't have necessarily said that they didn't deserve to win the game. So I think they've grown in stature. I think they've got a couple of excellent players in Dominic Soboslai and Roland Schallay who's had a really good season for Freiburg. And he's perfect for that team because he's quick, he's decisive, he's a good finisher. And so... Yeah, I know losing 4-0 at home to Hungary is unacceptable. I get that. In the grand scheme of things, I imagine it will be forgotten. It's not the only nation, though, England, that are under pressure, is it, Kevin? And, you know, we were talking off air earlier on, you know, about it being a dreadful fortnight for the world champions because they're building towards a, a defence of the World Cup in Qatar. But they didn't win a game either. Two draws and two defeats. And again, it's tiny margins. I mean, if you look at the, the home game against Denmark, they took the lead with a brilliant goal from Benzema and then conceded a couple of dozy goals and ended up losing the game. Austria, they should have lost probably, but Mbappe dug them out of jail. They got a draw. Mbappe hit the bar late on, so they could have won that one. The Croatia game was awkward because they conceded a really early goal. Ibrahima Konate gave away a penalty and then they just couldn't bash the door down. 
So it was a strange set of games, really. But there are some legitimate questions. Uh, Karim Benzema's had a brilliant season. If he gets the Ballon d'Or, nobody can argue. However, I'm not entirely sure the balance of the team is right. Olivier Giroud had a very good Nations League without playing because there were a lot of people saying, Giroud. you know, should he be in the team? I mean, he's just helped fire Milan to the Scudetto and him not being there. They don't, they don't work as hard without the ball. They don't have the same balance. Griezmann doesn't look the same player without Giroud there because Griezmann was brilliant at just kind of feeding off those scraps that Giroud would create uh, by holding off defenders. Kylian Mbappe had some bright moments, but also picked up an injury. There is talk in France about whether they're a bit too reliant on Mbappe and whether he's become too big a personality in that squad. And there are concerns defensively as well. What's the right defensive lineup? He's kind of gone between a back four and a back three. Nobody's quite sure what the best way is now that he's experimented with that. But it wasn't a total disaster. Aurelien Schuermeni, who's just signed for Real Madrid, had some good games at the heart of midfield. It was great for me as a Bundesliga fancy. Christopher Nkunku gets some good game time. Thought he had some excellent performances. So it's not all doom and gloom, but they've got some work to do, like yeah. a lot of teams, like I, England, like Germany. And that also comes back to the placing of the Nations League and you know, the game, experimenting a little bit ahead of the World Cup. I mean, listen, Didier Deschamps is very, very lucky. You know, we talk about... The, the attacking talent that England have got, but it's incomparable to 39 goals and 21 assists that Kylian Mbappe has posted this year, 44 goals and 15 assists that Benzema has posted this year, 35 goals and 16 assists for Leipzig that Nkunku has uh, posted this year. So, yeah, you know, we're talking about very different levels of goals and assists. That, there's England players who are nowhere near that. Not one of them's got anywhere near that. And I do think France are a cautionary tale, actually, because you go back to 2018 and what I said, good defensive structure, team that knew what it was doing, had match winners in the side. What did they then do for the Euros? He experimented with trying, he brought Benzema back, that unsettled things. He tried to cram in more attacking talent and they were wide open and they got done by Switzerland. People want England to play this fluent, attacking football, cramming guys like Foden, Grealish, you name it, into the team. That's not how you win international tournaments. Pure well, it simple. is if you're Uruguay in 1938, but <laughs> that was but a you, long You remember that ago. well. <laughs> is, there, is there a danger with France? Because I think you've touched on it on this podcast, Sam, or, or certainly on the White and Jordan show. You expect uh, Zidane to be the French manager after this tournament. Is there a danger that you've got a group of players there who probably know that Didier Deschamps' time is, is coming to an end and that's just caused a little bit of uncertainty? Not necessarily. I think they're winners. I, I, do, I do think the mentality there is, is that they are desperate to perform well in these tournaments. I think they're embarrassed by what happened in the Euros, I imagine. The concern would be, from a mental standpoint, actually what happened after that defeat to Switzerland, because the, the, you know, it's a ridiculous incident in isolation. But Adrian Rabiot's mum was basically having a go at the parents of some of the other players, um, talking about Pogba and his contribution, talking about Mbappe. You know, he, he thinks... That's a bit sort know. of junior Sunday league, doesn't it? He might, his yeah. mum picked on his mum for his... Completely. <laughs> Why but did he pick was, my kid? It was the latest in a long line of incidents. So you go back to there was a there was an argument in public between Giroud and Mbappe. 
um, and that kind of blossomed. And all the kind of things that we've seen French teams implode as a result of in tournaments gone by, didn't get any of that really in 2018. But it was back with a vengeance with the Euros. So that's something I think he has to keep a lid on. But in terms of him going, I, I don't think that would be a massive concern. OK, uh, let's move on to some domestic matters now and some transfers, and then we'll get to the business of football uh, before we leave you. Starting off, um, Burnley are in good company. And the full-time whistle goes, and it looks like that is it for Burnley. They are going to go back to the championship after losing here to Newcastle United. We can bring you a bit of uh, news. Burnley have got themselves a new manager and they're about to announce that it is Vincent Company. I mean, when you see the names, Tarkovsky, obviously, mm. Ben Mee, Jack Cole, Vidra, Ashley Barnes, Dale Stevens, Aaron Lennon, Eric Peters, Phil Bardsley, people like that. They've got a lot of experienced lads here that have done a good job for that club. You're right about the players leaving. You're right about the debt as well. And all of this put together swallows up any parachute payments. So I don't think there's a huge amount of money. I can actually see Burnley going down again. He is in a fortuitous position because he's landed in a side that's just dropped out of the Premier League with Premier League parachute payments. So they would be amongst the favourites to get back out of that division. Everyone thought that Bournemouth were going to fall off the face of the earth and never get back into Premier League. They did. It might have taken them two years. True. There's no reason to assume that Burnley won't do it. Yes, Burnley have announced their new manager. It is the former Manchester City captain, Vincent Compagny. Um, The 36-year-old spent two years at Anderlecht after retiring, and he's now going to be the permanent replacement for Sean Dyche at Turf Moor. Um, but look, I mean, he's said all the right things after being unveiled. Burnley Football Club is a truly historic English side and it is an honour to be appointed first team manager. I don't think that just naturally rolled off the tongue. I'm going to guess he scripted that because no one calls anybody Burnley Football Club for a start. Um, I'm excited by the challenge. I'm looking forward to getting to work with the players, many of those, Vincent, um, and creating a positive winning team for our fans when we return to Turf Moor. I've been impressed by the board's vision for the club. Okay, what's that then? Because as far as I understand it, half of the playing squad has left. 14 players have been let go, plus Tarkovsky uh, as well. And they, I think they're probably going to sell Wout Veghorst and uh, Maxwell Cornet. So, so, so where is he going to start? And is this really a good idea? Bearing in mind there's a proportion of the loan that was taken out as part of the club's takeover by ALK Capital in December 2020 to pay back. It's a massive leap of faith for Vincent Company, I have to say, uh, for all the reasons you've outlined. You could add Nick Pope, as I've already mentioned to that list. Burnley, uh, at one stage, were asking for £20 million. They'll be lucky to get 10 uh, for Nick Pope, bearing in mind that his contract expires at the end of next season. And everyone and knows they're desperate. And I know Nathan Collins has got suitors in the Premier League as well. More than one club uh, looking at him. Obviously scored a wonder goal uh, for the Republic of Ireland against Ukraine, adding to his uh, price tag perhaps. But again, they're not going to get multi-millions for players who only have one year in the Premier League. I'm interested what Vision Company has been sold because as we sit here now, I don't see Burnley as one of the favourites uh, for promotion. And if you look at what he did in Belgium, actually, um, they were a better team when he was player-manager than when he retired as a player and just focused on his managerial responsibilities. Any team with Vincent Company in the Belgium League 
is going to be a force to be reckoned with. So I think this is a big gamble on both sides, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah, but there's, there's extenuating circumstances. He had to do some work behind the scenes at Adelaide, didn't he? And sort of there was a there was a reason why they didn't perform as well as they had. He had to. He sort of almost went back to help sort out the club going yeah. forward. It's his, his own sort of like you know he has his, his relationships there. Um, but I wonder whether or not Kevin he's taken this job. And this this sounds basic. He's taken this job because it is a relatively high profile appointment because they've just come out of the Premier League and it's in the northwest and yeah. Vincent Company lives in the northwest of England so it, it, it's easy for him to 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 travel to work every day I, I I do wonder whether it's as basic as that I think that's a lot to do with it yeah I agree with you and I think we forget that sometimes I think we forget that players have families managers have families because his wife Carla comes from that. Manchester I mean yeah. you know did, did and there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with taking a job. Partially. I thought you meant nothing wrong with coming from Manchester. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Otherwise, there's going to be my neighbours here are not going to be happy if you're saying that, Yeah, I've got to be that, careful. Kevin. I've got yeah, to be very careful. Um, look, there's nothing wrong with taking a job because it works for your family. That's what most people would do. Mm. Um, I think it works for him because, as you say, you know, it's a, a decent job in the second tier. He did okay at Anderlecht in difficult circumstances. They haven't got a huge amount of cash. He came in to try and get them on an even keel, but they were nowhere near Club Brugge, for example, who've been the dominant force there for quite some time. You wouldn't necessarily have expected him uh, to win the league. He developed some young players and he might have to do that again. I've said on here before, I don't agree with the way Burnley was taken over. I don't agree with leverage buyouts. No. I think there's there's an ethical issue there, a serious one. And I'd apply that to the Glazers at Manchester United. And, yeah, well, I, and I hope one thing that does happen with this foot, fan-led football review that does eventually come into play or probably won't come into play because no policy that this government has ever announced actually has come into play. But anyway... Um, um, is that they stop and ban leverage takeouts? So that yeah. uh, takeovers that 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 would be for me the first thing that you would be on the on the wish list. Oh, I know I'm a German evangelist. I understand this, but that is the kind of thing that fifty plus one, which is no single entity can have more than fifty percent of the voting rights. That just it wouldn't go through at that level. They'd be able to to block that. So, and no fan is going to really vote that through and say, oh, yeah, you could buy the club using the club to kind of leverage the debt. It's no way <laughs> no a fan going to allow that, that to happen. No, no absolutely not. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I'd love to see that band. It's a massive job. But if he does well, then obviously Premier League clubs are going to look at him. Mm. The fact that he has a big reputation as a player and as a leader does him no harm. So... I think, and if it doesn't go well, let's be honest, he can point to the financial issues and the nature of the takeover and say, well, look, I was up against it. And that's kind of the situation with Underlecht as well. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, I do fear for them, but good luck to him. I hope it works out because he's a nice bloke. And actually the people that support Burnley are you know, a nice bunch and you just feel a little bit like they're being sold down the river by Alan Pace. Maybe I'm wrong about Alan Pace. Nothing so far has proved me wrong, but maybe I have not seen the bigger picture. You never know. Um, well, I want to talk about Romelu Lukaku. Lone return to Inter Milan now on the cards. Uh, they've officially opened talks with Chelsea over a deal to re-sign Romelu Lukaku on loan. Well, that worked well, didn't it? What a disaster. 90-odd million pounds to, to bring him back to his boyhood team and then their starting negotiations over a 5 million euro loan fee. I mean, we should mention that the way these transfers work, 
a lot of that ninety million pound won't have been paid yet. It will be heavily instalment based. I'm sure there's some negotiating to be done in terms but, of so, so is, is Chelsea writing like, off some money. Is it a bit like that Chelsea have bought him, kept the receipt? And taken him back, but it's after the sale period, like <laughs> yeah. after Christmas, and you still have to pay a little bit of the difference. Is it? Is, is that basically what we're talking here? I think so. Um, and I guess he's the football equivalent of the uh, the pair of socks that you always get from your grandma at Christmas that you don't really want. That is, uh, I think he's like Romelu an extravagant jacket that doesn't quite fit. Yes, that's it. He's like a velour yeah. jacket yeah, that you yeah. thought at the time brilliant. Yeah. That's going to look amazing, yeah. and it didn't work out. It's embarrassing for Chelsea. No, no, no two ways about it. Yeah, look, I agree. I, I, I'm shocked. I've got to say, I, I thought that the, the problem, I think, partially was that he didn't want to go. You know, he did. He, he would have stayed at Inter, I think. I, I think, obviously, he was he was talked around to it and there was that emotional connection from having been there before, blah, blah, blah. But actually... He did brilliantly for Inter. He was happy at Inter. He was always talking about how happy he was in Italy. But Inter needed the money. And they got rid of him. They got rid of Hakimi. That's why Antonio Conte left. Inter is still in that position financially. They have to make a profit in the transfer market. They don't want to let Lautaro Martinez go. And I think they love the idea of getting Lukaku and Martinez playing together again. I bet they do. Well, I think Lukaku would score 20 goals again in Serie A. probably would do. I think he would. And I'm, I'm surprised you guys know how big, a f- how much of a fan of Thomas Tuchel I am. I'm surprised that he didn't find a, a way to make it work. But he doesn't like him. Tactically. I was going to say, it's a personality yeah. clash. You, yeah. you, you, you can see that. Yeah, That's it. That's it. But I, I just, and again, this comes back to how much of it was Tuchel's deal and you know, if you've got an elite coach like that, you, you have to make sure he's 100% happy with the deal. I know it's Chelsea and they do things differently. So strange way of operating though, isn't it? Really it's odd. 97.5 million pounds on a player that you haven't checked to make sure is going to fit into the coach's system, the coach who's just won you the Champions League. Unless yeah. Tuchel thought that he would be able to do that and then has quickly come to the conclusion that he can't. Or there is, as we say, the personality clash immediately between the two. Very very strange. But he demands total buy-in. And if you've got a guy who walks in the door who didn't really want to make the move and is kind of like, well, I'll see how this goes. And then he had that interview with Sky Italia and that probably finished it off. I don't because- think you can sort of see how it goes when you've signed for 97.5 million pounds. You're, you, you are no. the definition of a franchise player crook, aren't you? Yeah, do you think the uh, the powers that be into Milan waved him out the door and said, we'll see you next year with a cheeky wink? Um, I have to say, it's um, it's an interesting one when it comes to Marina Granaskaya as well, because there's talk, of course, that she may well be uh, moving on in the not-too-distant future. You wonder if the new owner, Todd Bowley, has said to her, look, stay and sort this Lukaku mess out and then you can leave because it's on her watch and she's been lauded, uh, mainly for the players that she sold, actually, yes. as opposed to the players yeah, yeah. that she's bought I don't think this is the way that she would uh, want to be remembered. Yeah, recruitment's been poor for a long time at Chelsea and anyone says different just needs to get a list of the in-transfers from around about 2013 and then see what's gone out and the, the differences in price. And also, I mean, look, they've made a lot of money on players, which is great. And they've actually probably lessened some of the, uh, the deficits that they got from uh, spending so much in the early part of uh, the new century. But... Ultimately, I mean, let's let's have it right. You know, they've they've wasted a lot of money on some very bad footballers. I was looking through the retain list earlier. I mean, Timway Bakayoko's still on there. 
Bubba Ruckman is still on that retain list. Um, oh, who's the who's the player that it, in English place? Matt Miazga, I think, is still on that list. I mean, I'd completely forgotten about him. Is, this, is, <laughs> is, is, is that the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard? I mean, it's absolute it's craziness. Some of the money that they've spent, but you know, you know, that is. That is that has been Chelsea. And I think one of the things that Todd Bowley will have to do is put a structure in place where they align themselves a little bit better. Because Chelsea have won stuff despite not having great recruitment. You know, they've won stuff because they've recruited very good coaches at the right time. Listen, I'm not saying they've got bad players, but they haven't recruited in a systematic and philosophical way like Liverpool and Manchester City. And I think that is the next step for Chelsea if they want to be competitive. Because as we look at it right now, they're in serious danger of falling miles away from them because they've got... No- I mean, their plans for Jules Koundé are up in the air like you wouldn't believe because Koundé's had to have a, a little operation because he played when he shouldn't have played uh, for his international team. Uh, so ultimately, there is... There's, there's work, to, there's serious work to do in a very short period. I'll remind you again that the season starts, kicks off, actually kicks off in less than six weeks. I think as well, the fact that they have this boom and bust policy or have done for years does contribute to it. Because if mm. you change coaches a lot, they have different demands, they have different systems. You stockpile you players. And, yeah, you stockpile players and you try and fit those players, I mean, the Danny Drinkwater thing, what an utter disaster that was. And even... The worst sa- thing was when he played in midfield with Tim Wade Bakayoko and you had Drinkwater and Treadwater in there. <laughs> He's been waiting to get that out for, for about four years. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even Saul Niguez, I mean, you bring him in, he's a top player. He really is. But Tuchel didn't want him or didn't seem to want him and seemed to have no idea of how he was going to get him in the team. And so that didn't work for anybody. It certainly didn't work for Saul. So some really strange business. But as you say, they've ma- if they're serious about keeping Tuchel, and I think they are, they but if they're be. serious about keeping him, they're going to have to start working with him in a more joined up way and give him a bit more power because otherwise he's going to walk. They he just be, will. Because ultimately we all know, because we've watched other clubs go through this process, the level of what Crook would describe as an elite manager, uh, there's not many of them around. There's not even very many very good managers around. You know, there are few and far between proven coaches that have done very well at the top level of the game. You cannot keep rotating your head coach and expecting to get the same result, you know, a different result. It's not going to keep, you're not going to be able to keep refreshing that position with the requisite quality as Chelsea have found actually over the course of their, their slash and burn uh, years where they would replace a really good coach with someone that they thought was elite, Scolari, and then very quickly realise he is not. And then, you know, bring in Carlo Ancelotti, then get rid of him because you're bored of him after a couple of years and bring in Andre Villas-Boas not going to work. He was 15. Um, It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Look for the long term. Put a philosophy in place. Copy, you know, through gritted teeth, copy Liverpool, copy Manchester City and get it right. You've got the ability to do it. You've got a fresh, clean slate where you can rebuild the, the, the structures of the club. Why not do it? Uh, Newcastle United trying to do that as well. Uh, they're in talks with Lille still about Sven Botman. I mean, will Sven Botman just pack his bags and go to Newcastle? For God's sakes, it's going to happen. But just, it's been going on for about 10 years, this move. Yeah, but I think this is uh, Newcastle not wanting to pay over the odds for players. And it was a frustration for them in January. And already, very early in the summer window, they're finding it difficult again because... 
everybody knows they've got this pot of Saudi money. Newcastle tax is being applied. And actually, I think it's to Newcastle's credit that they are prepared to walk away from deals. I think they, they inquired about Ivan Tony Brentford's asking price asking price was ridiculous uh, and they will walk away from Sven Botman. They have their limitation. I think it's around 30, maybe 32 million pounds. Lil all of a sudden have, have raised the, the price tag to nearer 40 million pounds. They aren't going to pay that. It's the same with Hugo Ekatike. They've agreed a fee with Rands. Uh, the, the player, I, I think he's, he's keen to come, but his agent is still holding out for Borussia Dortmund in the hope that they see him as Erling Haaland's replacement. Again, Newcastle willing to walk away and I think they should be praised for that because they don't want to have their pants pulled down, basically. Which is a remarkable thing in the summer because most people, that's exactly what they want. Uh, Right, okay, let's move on to the business of football. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Well, uh, this is just a quick little bit about um, a broadcast deal that happened in America. Now, you might think, who cares what happens with broadcast rights for the MLS? But actually, you should care. And one, the MLS football is always cyclical. And one day the MLS will be a dominant league in the world, trust me, because otherwise they wouldn't have started it. Um, And, you know, there's some good players in that MLS league. And ultimately, you'll see, especially going up towards the World Cup in 2026, America will develop as a football team. Um, There is a a new broadcast deal between Major League Soccer in the United States and Apple TV, which means that every match will be available to Apple TV subscribers, which you might get free with your new iPhone, your new iPad at the moment, whatever your new Mac. Anywhere in the world. So that means that if you have Apple TV in Afghanistan, or you have Apple TV in Nebraska, or you have Apple TV in Charlotte, where there is a MLS team, uh, or you have Apple TV in Sydney, Australia, you will be able to tune in to the same product. So one streaming service has bought the whole of the MLS for 10 years, 10 years. It's worth 2.5 billion pounds, which actually over 10 years is probably quite a good price, really. And it actually probably puts them in the similar level in terms of financial financially with the Premier League, really, because that is, that is, that is a major step up in terms of investment. Um, I think 
something like £342 million a season for the rights that NBC pay for the Premier League for the next six years. And this is £250 million. Okay, it's global, it's worldwide, it's a little bit different. It's probably only half the money overall. But this is, this is a significant step up for the MLS. But I think what's really key here, what's really key here is that Apple have decided to enter the world of sports and that it is a global deal from one streaming giant. And Kevin, that makes a massive difference because the Premier League can now look around and go, do you know what? Instead of flogging and selling all of these different rights packages to loads of different people, we could just do a couple of local carve-outs and sell it to the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it's that clarity that I think will appeal because you know where to get it. You know, if you want an MLS game, you go to Apple TV. It's as simple as that. And so I think that's the way it's heading. I think what's been interesting for me as a commentator with the Bundesliga, for example, is this idea of streaming has, has become more and more important anyway. So, for example, our deal in the States with ESPN+, Plus they stream all of the games. So if you've got that deal, you can watch any of the games. So you haven't got a situation where, you know, some games might be on BT, some games might be on Sky, Mm. a a random game in Boxing Day might be on Amazon. You know, you don't have that. You you have this thing for the whole of the season and every single game is available to you. Uh, There was a game, a a Tottenham game, I think. I can't remember what it was, but it was maybe a rearranged Tottenham game that was on none of the TV providers yeah was that the one yeah it was live on talk sport mate well of course (laughs) but if you wanted to watch it and of course talk sport is always a great option um but none of the tv you know subscription services had it and if you're paying for bt like i say um you're paying for amazon you're paying for sky and one of the games which is quite a big game in the race for the top four is not on any of those channels that does seem an absurd situation so i do think that's the way we're heading and i do think these massive tech companies with very very deep pockets are going to be able to superheat the market because the kind of more traditional broadcasters in terms of tv at least are not going to be able to live with them no it's better for the consumer as well because you know kev's just listed three companies there you you basically need three subscriptions now to watch all of the live premier league football you've got the nations league that's gone to premier sports i'm not sure that's been great for the nations league by the way because i don't know too many people who've subscribed for that particular service and maybe this is a a step in the, the right direction in terms of just getting all your football in one place i'm sure that sky and bt and others won't agree with me it could also be a first step towards uh, what Simon Jordan has been advocating for some time now, whereby Premier League clubs basically set up their own in-house streaming service and sell the rights themselves. I worry about that. Yeah, I don't I, like I the worry idea about that. that massively. Yeah, I, I think there's no scrutiny, no independent judgment. It's no. all very Pravda. Oh yes, weren't they brilliant in a four-nil yeah. defeat? I think that's a massive problem for the sport potentially in terms of losing the, legitimacy. Because yeah. Barcelona, you know, Barcelona and Real Madrid do their own deals and what have you. And uh, look how that turned out in terms of some of the uh, financial scrapes they've yeah, ended up exactly. getting into. But I think that's the concern. You completely lose the objectivity. 
Yeah, yeah completely. And I don't think it's it's good for the sport. I don't think it's good for the league. I think then you're leaning towards the kind of thing that we push so hard against the Super League for. Mm. And on the Super League, by the way, if we thought that was dead, it isn't because Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, who's been one of the, I mean, he's been pushing this for years and years and years. This is his baby, really, the Super League. Um, he was on uh, what's becoming a very famous show, actually, called El Chiringuito. He was on that in Spain and he was saying, this is not finished. We are still pushing this. We still believe this will happen. And there's a very important court hearing in July at the European Court of Justice. And what that is effectively going to rule on is whether UEFA and by extension FIFA are not allowed to basically dominate the governance of a sport. So at the moment, at the moment, European competition is under the auspices of UEFA. If this court case goes against UEFA, <laughs> then all bets are off and it's the Wild West, quite frankly. Yeah, we're in massive trouble if that happens. We really way. are. We really are, because football as we know it will be completely fragmented. Because, because will that be. will mean that someone can start a league and UEFA and FIFA cannot then take action to keep it under control. So whereas they would threaten that anyone involved in the ESL couldn't play in a World Cup or a European Championship, yeah, they will it. now not be able to do that if that court case goes against them. So therefore, you, me and Crook could start a league and invite Manchester United, Real Madrid and PSG and that could be our big thing and we could sell the rights for ages, uh, for, for, for millions of dollars, no matter the impact on, on the Premier League or whatever. And no one could do anything about it. And it would lived, just be run by the market, wouldn't it? it not, not sure I'm in favour of that. Again. I was just no. about to say that. We've seen it in, you know, the world of golf has been absolutely torn apart in the last few weeks, even divides amongst, you know, the, the, the various groups of players. So I think for the good of the game, and listen, it's better the devil you know, I guess, because UEFA are not perfect. I think we all want that court case to go UEFA's way. That's the really interesting thing, isn't it? Because there are two issues here. I think one of them is you want to have that clarity. So we would want UEFA to win that, but then that doesn't mean UEFA are bulletproof. And I don't think we should then accept a situation where UEFA can just do what they want, no. regardless of scrutiny and regardless of pushback. So I think there's got to be, it's a lot more nuanced than a kind of, but, you but know, maybe, UEFA Kevin, are the good guys and, you know, the Super League are the bad guys. Absolutely. I think maybe one thing that needs, needs to happen is that and and look? I, I don't want it to happen any way, shape, or form. I don't want any disruption, any more further disruption. But a big, massive collapse of the institutions might actually help us reshape the calendar to something a little bit more uh, uniform and palatable. Because at the moment, the football calendar is so badly organised. It's a little bit like in in the sixteen hundreds and fifteen hundreds when they built towns and cities. They built them just because out of necessity. So if you needed a road, you'd have a road that went from here to there. And if it was at a diagonal, it went round a bend or whatever. That's fine. When they got to America and started building cities, they realised that actually it's so much easier if you plan it out and you do it in grid form and therefore people can get from A to B a lot easier in block form. So it's a lot more uniform and it's a lot more well-organised and the transport all works and it's all a, a little bit more modern. We are in the sort of like the 1600s in terms of the calendars. It goes round bends, it goes in diagonals. It, 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 it's, it's not fit for purpose. It, there's too, it's too many shapes involved. We need a more sort of linear structured calendar that allows players to have their designated rest. We know how many games there are per 
per season. Yeah, there's, there's some beauty about the chaos of the of the football fixtures, especially in 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 you know what Matlock Town are going to do and again Staines Town, for example. But actually, the global game needs more structure. I think. Well, the players have got to have more of a say, and I think the players there's an element where they need to be a bit more unionized and a little, a little bit more vocal, quite mm. frankly. It's all very well Kevin De Bruyne doing a random interview saying he thinks the nation league, Nations League is pointless. Great. Okay. Why don't you get a load of the players together, like Mbappe, like the big names, but not just them, and come to the table and say, look, we know we're very well paid. We get that. But if you want this product to be as good as it can be, you're going to have to come to a solution with us because at the moment you've got UEFA want an expanded Champions League and I understand why, but they want that. They want the Nations League as well. FIFA want an expand. Let's not forget, FIFA want an expanded Club World Cup. That is what they want. They have the finance in place and UEFA have been pushing back against that saying we haven't got the space for it. We don't want it. But that's what FIFA want. And that's what this biennial World Cup was all about. Because FIFA were floating the idea of a biennial World Cup, which nobody wants. But they want to use that as a bargaining chip to say, OK, we'll leave that but we want more if teams you agree to an expanded Club World Cup. That's yeah. what that's all about. And so you've got all that going on in the background. The individual leagues are not going to say, OK, we'll go down to 16 teams and we'll have mm. a few le- fewer games because then they lose out on broadcast money. So yep. it's got to be a compromise. But where's it going to come FIFA, from? FIFA Pro, who is the global union, think that no more than 55 matches per player per season is the right amount. Uh, Sadio Mane and Mo Salah played 68 this yeah. year. And it took uh, its toll on Salah in particular. Yeah. yeah. Harry Maguire, another one of those. You know, <laughs> Harry Maguire, you, you say that, but you know, he played 19 consecutive matches from December 20th, 2020 to February 21st, 21 in what would be described as by some people as an excessive workload. Then you wonder why the, the season after that, he's having a real problem. Anyway, um, that's it from us for this week. I'll be back on Monday morning uh, with uh, Kevin and with Darren Lewis. Uh, Crook's going on a, a stag do for the, his own stag do for the weekend. It's not a stag do. It's a stag do. It must be. There's 28 other men going. There's no way that <laughs> that, that is anything other than a stag do. You can't explain that away. I'm just a very popular character. You're not. You know. You've invited, it's his 40th birthday, he's invited the family butcher, the, ta- the taxi driver that takes him to Cheltenham every year, somebody's dad, some bloke he <laughs> met in, uh, in, in Portugal last summer, and he even invited Charlie Adam, who ghosted him, by the way, and didn't respond to his text message. <laughs> that is not true at all. It is true. It is true. Exclusive. Absolute, <laughs> absolute fabrication. Right, okay, uh, see you soon. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, uh, Crook. This is the Game Day podcast from Talk Sports. Make sure you download it and tell all your friends about it. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds, we set them. Form guides, we've got them. Expert opinions, we share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org, T's and C's apply.